Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you. What reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only. What do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors Do so. Therefore you shall be perfect. Just as your father in heaven is perfect. In the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been speaking about God's standards of righteousness in his kingdom. Jesus has touched on the laws of life in verses 21 through 32. The law of our lips in verses 33 through 37. Now the law of love in verses 38 through 48. The laws of life were addressing the issues of relationship, fellowship, family life. Now the law of lips, our speech. And now Jesus invites listeners to consider dealing with people who refuse to be just. Toward us. We're to demonstrate love rather than vindictiveness in verses 38 through 42. We show love rather than hatred in verses 43 through 48. Jesus has spoken about hatred in the heart as murder in verses 21 through 26. He's spoken about lust in the heart as adultery in verses 27 through 30. Jesus has spoken about divorce in verses 31 and 32. He's spoken about oaths in verses 33 and 37. Retaliation in verses 38 through 42. And now he's bringing it all together as he talks about this Amazing, important, overarching quality. Love. And so in verse 43, we begin by making the choice to love or hate. And that might come as a surprise to you that it is a choice. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 43, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus, in part, is quoting Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It's as if he's taking out the scroll. Leviticus 19, 18 reads, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, unquote. Once again, Jesus will deal with the problem of misinterpretation and misapplication of the scriptures. When the Jewish people read in Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, they read that as, well, then you know what? I can bear all kinds of grudges against the Gentiles. Remember, 
Maybe you grew up in the same kind of world I grew up in. My father said, Gino, there's two kinds of people in the world, Italian people and people who wish they were. For the Jewish person reading this, it opened the door to bearing grudges. In Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, we read, quote, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. Verse 5, if you see the donkey of someone who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. The Lord is basically saying, even though, the, what, are, you know, what are the chances of you seeing someone whose donkey has gone astray or suffering under the weight of its burden? And you might be thinking, whew, thank God people drive Toyotas these days. But that's part of the point. It's about something that they possess or a necessity that is important to them. The law, the law did not command or demand hatred for enemies. God's standard has always been concern, compassion, mercy, love for the people who are close to you and for the people who are far away from you, for the people that you care about and the people that you aren't so fond about. For those of you who are somewhat familiar with the Bible, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do we do with the Psalms of David in, in Psalm 139 verse 19? Where it says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For they who speak against you wickedly, your enemies take your name in vain. Uh, do I hate do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them as my enemies. And you might be thinking, okay, what are you going to do with that? Does David have a kind of righteous hostility towards the enemies of God? And the right answer is yes. There was a kind of righteous indignation and godly hostility towards those who oppressed the people of God, towards those who persecuted the people of God. But for some, this righteous indignation and this godly hostility towards those who oppressed and those who persecuted and those who marginalized and those who subjugated the people of God, it turned into an ungodly loathing and revulsion against anyone and everyone who wasn't a Jew. Some Jewish groups like the Essenes, quote, emphasized hatred towards those who are outside of the covenant, according to Craig Keener. The law in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And most of you are familiar with the New Testament question that is asked of Jesus. Well, who is my neighbor? 
And you'll remember the parable that Jesus gives. He basically talks about a man who's going from Jerusalem to Jericho and he falls among some thieves. And in the story, he has a priest walking right past him. He has another person walking, a Levite walking right past him. He makes the hero in the story a Samaritan, a biracial person who's not really Gentile, who's not really Jewish. This person goes out of their way picks them up, anoints them with oil. Not only does this person provide first aid and intervention, they set them up at a hotel and they give them money for room and board. And he says, and if it needs a little bit more, I'll help you on the way. And they said, which person was his neighbor? And they were bitter and they were resentful that he would use such a thing. This is the problem. It would appear that the religious authorities neglected when it says in Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the part that they left out of the passage. People who are proud and self-righteous can't conceive of loving anyone as much as they love themselves. The Bible teaches that human beings are inclined towards self-love. They are predisposed to self-interest. So the scribes and the Pharisees were well aware of the full text. And so, the book of Job, perhaps the oldest book in the Bible, before there was ever the giving of the law, Job declared in Job chapter 31, verses 29 and 30, If I've rejoiced at the destruction of him who hated me, Or lifted myself up when evil found him. Indeed, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for a curse on his soul, unquote. Before even the giving of the law, Job knew it was wrong to look at people in their misfortune and look at people who are disadvantaged and look at people who who, who have experienced horror and say, good, you deserve it. Like so many people, the religious leaders knew the Bible. They were aware of God's standard. But the scripture was not, even though it was fully known, it was only partially taught. And so Jesus says, bless, pray, love our enemies. And that's the shock. It's the shock for so many. Because clearly the world falls into two categories. The people, if you ask them, hey, does anybody hate you? They go, what's not to love? But when I was preparing this message, I thought to myself, who's the first person who ever hated me? Do you remember? For some of you, you have to go way, way back. But I want in your mind, just think for a moment, who was the first person who came up to you and said, I hate your guts or I hate you? Or they somehow, either physically or or verbally, somehow they communicated their disgust with you. For me, it was kindergarten. By the time I got to kindergarten, I remember my my kindergarten teacher, her name was uh, Janine Brown. And I'm in the kindergarten class with all my kindergarten buddies And there was one particular girl who hated me. She hated me. 
She completely misunderstood. She thought that the sun rose around her and that the world existed for her. And when the sun set, it was setting for her. All life, all meaning had all of its value as it centered around her. And everybody knew that that couldn't be true. It was about me. And she was the first person to challenge my worldview that the whole world exists for me. Now imagine you're in a classroom where one person says the whole world exists for me and another person says the whole world exists for me and then they clash. And so the truth is someone at some point isn't going to like you. Someone said, enemies are not those who hate us, but rather those whom we hate. And there might be a measure of truth to that statement. But the sad truth is sometimes people will hate you. My granny used to say, love will blind you to people's faults. But hate will blind you to their virtues. Isn't that interesting? Love will blind us to people's faults where we go, hey, you know what? I love this person. I'm going to overlook this. 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 But hate, hate, hate blinds us from seeing anything good about them, anything gracious, anything important. And so Jesus will say in verse 44, look, but I say to you. Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Here in four commands, Jesus gives us insight in just how we can love rather than hate. Here we're given a glimpse into the statement, love your enemy. Number one, we love them. Number two, we bless those who curse us. Number three, we do good to those who hate us. Number four, we pray for those who despitefully use us and persecute us. And the love that Jesus is speaking about isn't simply a feeling. It's not an affection. It's a moral imperative. The love that he's talking about isn't some warm, fuzzy feeling that wells up inside of you. The verb is in the present tense, implying an ongoing process directed towards friend and foe that, re- that because you have come into a right relationship with God in Christ in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. You've passed from, from death into life. You've become a Christian. You've, you've exited darkness. You've embraced the light. We, we Christians have enemies because we have been chosen out of the world, according to John chapter 15, verse 9. The cross of Christ has become an offense to the world. And because you love Jesus, and because you embrace the cross, I'm not talking about being hated because you're a jerk, or being hated because you're an idiot. Or because you do stupid, weird, stupid things. This isn't what he's talking about. He, He isn't talking about people who interact with other people who do stupid things. He's he's literally talking about this person who you're interacting with who have come to grips with the fact that your love for God and your love for Christ has, has put the relationship at risk. We Christians have enemies because we've chosen Christ and he's chosen us it's the cross of Christ that's become the offense 
English essayist and, and critic Charles Lamb, who was born right around when our country was being born and who lived into the third decade of the 18th about he died about 1834 once commented about a person that he didn't want to meet he said don't introduce me to that man I want to go on hating him I can't hate someone I know see you're smiling because you're going there's a lot of truth to that the moment that you meet someone, the moment that you weep with them, the, the moment when you see how they love their children and how they love their grandchildren, how their lives isn't fundamentally different from your life. In order to hate your enemies, guess what? Jesus is going to invite you, instead of distancing yourself from them, of closing the gap between you and them. No wonder Jesus says, love your enemies. What kind of love is so great that it even embraces those who are committed to hating? I think most of you know the answer to that question. It's God's love. Love your enemies in what way? In the way that God loved you. Do you remember when you were an enemy? You were running from God. You were hiding from God. Sometimes you may have been spitting at God, resisting God. In the first service, I, I happened to be t uh, reading a book by Lee Strobel. He, of course, is the author of the popular book, Case for, for Christ and Case for Faith. But he's written a new book called Case for Grace, where he tells the, this motivating story about the power of God to transform a life. And, and, and he talks about this young Korean girl in the opening chapter of his book. And during the Korean War, many soldiers went out and had relations with people in Korea, which resulted in a number of biracial children. And the biracial children became, in many ways, persecuted, neglected, ignored, marginalized, sometimes even abandoned. He tells the story of this one lady who couldn't take it. She put her child on a, on a train and said, your uncle is going to meet you at the next stop. This child was four years old. And she got off the train expecting to meet someone at the age of four, four years old, four. And there's nobody there. But she believed her mom and she waited for an hour and she waited for two hours and she waited for eight hours and nobody ever showed up. And when the night came, she found a cart covered with straw. She went in and she laid there and she got up and she went back and she kept thinking, he'll come, he'll come. He never came. She gets hungry. She goes out into the fields. She starts stealing food. She's four years old. As she continues to grow by stealing she crawls out into the field. She eats mice, fur, head, entrails, and all. She does whatever it takes in order to be a, a survivor. But because she's biracial, she's even neglected and, and ignored and, and ridiculed and shunned. Finally, an aid worker finds her, takes her to an orphanage, but by this time, she's way beyond adoption. 
And so her job is just to care for the children. She cares for the children. She loves the children. This is her outlet. She will love them, love them, love them. She finds meaning and purpose and, and some semblance of, 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 of value in loving these children. And a missionary couple come to the orphanage and they're looking to adopt a child and they pick up one boy and then they pick up another girl and they pick up a boy and he hugs them and, 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 and he kisses them and the couple hugs them and kisses them and the girl watches and she watches and and she watches and she watches, but they keep coming back and they don't pick a child. And finally, they look at this little girl and they say, we want you. But she's so hurt. She's so broken. She thinks that they want her to use her and abuse her. She's thinking that they're adopting her so that she'll be a slave in their household. And so for the first week, she's wondering why she isn't working. And the second week, she's wondering why she isn't working. And the third week, she's wondering why she isn't working. And finally, a person says, don't you understand that you're their, you're their daughter? She went, what? Yes, you're their daughter. And she couldn't believe it. She was chosen, that she was accepted, and she was adopted into a family. You know what I didn't tell you? When the man first started greeting her and first started trying to figure out a way to love her, she spit in his face and scratched him and ran away. Just like you. Just like me. God found you. He said, I'm willing to forgive you. I'm willing to love you. I'm willing to accept you. I'm willing to adopt you into to my own family. This is the kind of love that he's talking about. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were no different from people in important positions of government and church and business today. They were proud and prejudiced and judgmental and spiteful and hateful and vengeful people who masqueraded as custodians of God's law and the spiritual leaders of Israel. To them, Jesus' command to love your enemies must have seemed naive and foolish. In the first service, at least three people came up to me because they thought that what I was saying was naive and foolish. Well, what about ISIS? What are you going to do with those people? And I said, in my world, they all die. If I'm in charge of the world and I'm the leader of the free world, I go to Iraq and Syria and I kill all of them. But you see, I'm not the leader of the free will world. I'm the pastor of this church and a follower of Christ. And the passage isn't directed towards governments. The passage is directed to you and to me. The passage is inviting you to do exactly what Jesus is inviting the individuals who are listening to his sermon. To them, Jesus' command to love their enemies, like I said, seemed naive and foolish. Does it seem naive and foolish to you when we're faced with a choice to love your enemy or act out of fear and prejudice or ignorance or adopt some other agenda? The most difficult thing that you could possibly do is to pause and just say, I'm going to get to know these people. Human beings tend to love things or love people based on how 
desirable that person is or that thing is. We love people who are attractive. We love people who love what we love. We love people who love the teams that we love, who vote the way that we vote. There's a kind of love that is self-serving and self-satisfying, but God's love is different because his love is need-oriented. It's based on seeing someone in trouble or in need and meeting that need. And so the New Testament uses three words to describe love. One is phileo, which is affection. Phileo is a kind of word that describes the affection that men and women have towards one another and families have towards one another. There's there's Eros, which is a type of sexual, physical attraction. And then there's agape. This love is not just an affection, even though there is an affectionate component in in it. This is the kind of love that's not motivated by how you feel about someone. This is the kind of love that seeks to meet the needs of others. This is the kind of love that asks the question, what is in his or her best interest? Not what is in my best interest. And so that's what he's talking about. In the days of the American Revolution, there lived in Ephrata, Pennsylvania, a Baptist pastor by the name of Peter Miller. He enjoyed friendship with, of all people, General George Washington. And there also lived in the town one Michael Whitman. He was an evil-minded man who did everything in his power to abuse and oppose the pastor and his ministry. And one day, Michael Whitman was involved in some intrigue. He was arrested. He was found and caught and tried for treason and he was sentenced to death and the old preacher started out on foot and he walked mile after mile for 70 miles from Epaphrata, Pennsylvania all the way to, to, to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to meet with Washington. He came into Washington's presence and he began to beg for the life of this traitor. And Washington said, Peter, I can't give you the life of your friend. And the preacher exclaimed, my friend, there's no one in the world who hates me more than this man. There's no one who opposes me more than this man. There is no one who is angrier and filled with hatred and bitterness towards me. And Washington said, you walked 70 miles to save the life of an enemy. Washington says, this puts it in an entirely different light. I'll grant his pardon. And he did. And Peter Miller took Michael Whitman from the very shadow of death, from the very gallows itself, and he and they walked the 70 miles back to the parish. No longer an enemy, but a friend. John Henry Newman wrote, quote, we should conduct ourselves towards our enemy as if he will one day be our friend, unquote. And so Jesus says, bless. That means speak well of those who curse you. Bless. Well or good means in accordance with the true concept of good that's found in the Bible. And so when even Jesus is saying, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. 
He's not even for one minute implying that you should say something that is not true or that is not true about the person. He's not asking you to lie about them or to to pretend that if they're wicked and if they're evil, that they're not wicked and that they're not evil. He's trying to find a way for you to to, to intervene on his behalf, to speak well of those who curse Christians. It will, will later include praying for God's intervention in their lives, to change their lives so that they'll no longer curse God, so that they'll one day love the Lord. That's what he's talking about. There was this lady who had something kind to say about everyone. No matter how disturbing the situation was, she would always find something nice to say. And someone said, Harriet, I believe that you'd find something nice to say about the devil. And she said, well, you've got to admire his persistence. (laughs) It is trying to find a way to look at some virtue, something that's noble, something that's good. Do you realize that when you have that kind of affectionate commitment and a commitment to speak differently about people, that it isn't just simply feeling or thinking differently, it's speaking differently, and then it's acting differently. Look what it says, do good to those who hate you. By the way, all these verbs, love, bless, do good, pray, they're all in the present tense. You may not understand what that means, but let me help you understand that, what this means. Because even the evil behaviors are all in the present tense. Curse, hate, persecute. The idea being you're going to be cursed at over and over again. You're going to be hated over and over again. You're going to be persecuted over and over again. That this is the norm. This isn't the exception. This isn't the off chance. This isn't something that, that, oh, by the way, someone has accidentally wound up not liking you. The implication that Jesus is giving is that when you start thinking pure thoughts and when you start living a pure life and when you have a pure heart and when you adopt the character of the citizen of the kingdom, remember Jesus has already said you're going to be persecuted. The moment that you go on record, the contrast is the Christian's response. Doing good, praying. And so Jesus insists that we pray for those who persecute us. And some of us are more than happy to pray for our loved ones. Tragically, some of us aren't. Do you pray for your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, your children, your grandchildren? You might put them on the laundry list and say, oh Lord, help them, spare them, minister to them, encourage them, love them, support them. Lord, I care about what's going on in their life. You may not even take the time to actually pray for the people that you really care about, let alone don't care about. If you pray for your family if you pray for your friends, if you pray for your leaders, how much time is left for those who hate you, curse you, persecute you? But Jesus knows something. Jesus knows something that each and every one of us are now starting to discover. And that is that when you love someone, 
and you find a way to think good about them and you find ways to help them instead of hurt them. And when you find ways to pray for them, that they're increases in direct proportion this amazing thing that might happen it could happen it may not happen but your enemy might just change there's no promise that he or she will but there is a promise that you will they may not change but i guarantee you will change you will be different You will be different. You will grow. You will mature. You will change. That's the point. You imagine that there might be someone in your life, someone who's given you an unpleasant memory, fear, sin, guilt. There may be someone in your life who is so hardened, so beyond hope, so selfish beyond description, so sinful that he or she would make Satan blush. And you may think that they would never feel guilt, that they would never experience the weight and punishment of sin, but they do. In the history of the church, the most egregious persecutions have come from so-called religious people. You know, we don't often think of atheists or agnostics or philosophical naturalists as religious, but they are religious. You see, even in a world where people say there's no religion, they, they believe in no God, they have no church, they have nothing. They still believe stuff about the world in which they live. They still believe stuff about themselves. Those who oppose God's word will oppose God's people. Think about it. Isn't persecution at least part of the world's way of saying that I don't think that the Bible is true and I don't think that God is real? And so you become the object of persecution. You become the object of hatred and ridicule because people will look at you and say, tell me again what it is that you believe. I believe the Bible. Tell me again what it is that you believe. I believe that that Jesus is the Lord. Tell me again what it is that you believe that God is willing to forgive me in Christ. Tell me again what it is that you believe that I've been chosen. Tell me again what it is that you believe that I've been adopted and I've been placed into a new family. You see, God's love not only gives forgiveness, but it goes beyond forgiveness. It's beyond forgiveness to a choice and an acceptance and then a placement in a new family. Jesus taught that every disciple who makes his faith known is going to pay some price for it. And we're to pray for those who want to exact the price from us. The ancient church father Chrysostom said that prayer is the height of self-control and that we have most brought our lives into conformity in God's standards when we pray for persecutors. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the pastor in prison in World War II, said, quote, this is the supreme demand through the medium of prayer. We go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God, unquote. That's exactly what he did. And they removed him from his cell. And they placed a German Ruger in the back of his head and they blew his brains out. 
But Jesus knows, Jesus knows, Jesus knows that citizens in his kingdom will grow. They'll change. Look what it says in verse 45, that you may be the sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so what is he saying? That you may be sons of your father in heaven. In what way are we sons of our father in heaven? By doing these things, we become the sons? No, we are his sons. And that's why we do these things. This is the point that Jesus is making. We have his heart. We reflect his character. We demonstrate his love. In what way? We run after them the same way that God ran after us. We love them the same way that God loved us. When he says he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, he's talking about the common grace that a good God in heaven provides goodness. To everyone who wants it and everyone who needs it and even those who reject it. Your unbelieving family and your unbelieving friends, the sun will come up tomorrow. Your unbelieving family and unbelieving friends, they will be the beneficiaries of the grains that grow and the fruit that is harvested. They'll be the beneficiaries of medical care. They'll be the beneficiaries of all of the common graces that God allows. And so it is for each and every one of you. Jesus isn't suggesting that this is the way to become the sons of the Father, but rather this is the way the sons of the Father show that they're sons of the Father. Children act like their parents. I know for some of you go, oh God, I hope that's not true. But it is true, isn't it? For the most part. Have you ever met someone, little boy or little girl, you looked at him and you go, I can pretty much guess who your mom and dad are. <laughs> that's the point. It's where people in the world are looking at you and they can pretty much guess who you are and who your father is. To love our enemies and pray for them reveals our relationship with the, with the real God. So loving as God loves doesn't make us children. It becomes the evidence that we are children. There was the tragedy of Gandhi's encounter with Christians that sometimes we experience. And maybe many of you don't know about Mahatma Gandhi, but he in his early life was a, a lawyer and this young brown lawyer goes to South Africa and he reads the New Testament and he hears the story about Jesus and he is amazed at what the Bible has to say about this Jesus and he goes to a South African church and he shows up in a suit and tie with his very black face and the white person there says, maybe you should go and worship people who, with, who look like you. And Gandhi thought to himself, if Christianity has its own caste system, if Christianity has its own caste system of who can be included and who can be excluded, he goes, I don't want anything to do with it. He said, I find your Jesus so attractive, but I find Christians less than attractive. 
And whether you like it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you like it or not, everything that you say and everything that you do will reflect who your father really is. Are we living up to the reality of what Jesus commands? Jesus calls us to think and speak and act differently. And when we think and speak and act in a way that's consistent with the world, then guess what? We are sending a false message about our Heavenly Father. The world is broken. The world is twisted. The world is distorted. It is fallen. There are hurt people. There are broken people. And different cultures all around the world know about this brokenness, know about this twisting, know about this distortion. In Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Grace, he talks about the journey that this biracial Korean young lady takes as, as she goes to America, as she goes into American schools, as she goes into a, an American high school. She becomes homecoming queen. Admired by everyone. But she looks in the mirror. She looks in the mirror. And she remembers the little girl who, on hands and knees, crawled through, through fields, stealing food, eating rats, being sexually molested and abused. And she was wondering, how do you get past this brokenness? How do you get past this wickedness? How do you actually go and do what the Bible says about forgiveness and acceptance and adoption? And her parents came in and said, we love you. We will always love you. We care about you. We will always care about you. God's no respecter of persons. That's what it's saying. God is gracious. He allows the sun to shine on the evil as well as the good. The just and the unjust. There is a common grace, but there's a specific grace. And so he says in verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors. And by the way, tax collector was the worst thing that you could call a person in the first century to this audience. This is the most despised group of people in this particular culture. When I was a kid growing up, I remember going to the beach. We're on the California beach, and this couple got into a really bad argument, and they started yelling and screaming and calling each other names. Every vile and wicked thing that you could imagine, they called themselves. And finally, the woman, when she came to the end of her rope, when she was trying to think of the worst thing that she could possibly say to this, this guy, she said, you tourist. That was like the most loathsome thing that a Californian could call another Californian. This is the most loathsome thing that a person can call another person. Were there some people who were kind to Gentiles? I think that the answer is yes. Were most people kind to Gentiles? I think the answer is no. But even look what Jesus says. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? The implication, you have no reward. There's another implication. Are sinners capable of affection? What's the right answer? 
Are sinners capable of kindness toward one another? Is affection and kindness an indication of a pure moral character? The answer is no. That's the point. And so he says in verse 47, And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so. The question anticipates the response. You being kind to each other, you being affectionate towards one another, you associating with people who are exactly like you has no value when it comes to growing, enlarging, perfecting, maturing, Your heart. Has anyone ever said to you, well, why do you think you're better than everyone else? Well, the question prompts a a, a number of different answers. Christians don't think they're better than anybody else. Christians are called to a higher standard. Christians are called to a better behavior by virtue of love. The religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees genuinely believe. They genuinely, with all of their heart, believe that every way that you measure better, they're better. They are more committed to going to the temple and to the synagogue. They're more committed to reading their Bible. They're more committed to prayer. They're more committed to giving alms. Every single measure that you could possibly measure that constitutes measurements for the law, zeal for Judaism. Paul himself said, concerning righteousness, I, 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 I exceeded my peers. But if you ask them, if you ask them, do you love me? If you were a tax collector, if you're a prostitute, if you're a Gentile, the answer is no. And there will be people in your life who will try to figure out ways to stay as far away from you as possible. But they're really asking the question, Do you love me? Even though my skin is a different color. Do you love me? Even though I don't make as much money as you do. Do you love me? Even if I'm not financially secure. Do you love me? If I'm broken and I'm carrying the wounds of living a life. That has created a kind of a brokenness. That isn't easy to recover from. And so Jesus says in verse 48, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Think about the context. In verse 44, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, and now be perfect. You're reading it and you're going, well, Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Does that mean flawless, sinless, faultless, blameless? The word perfect can mean whole. It can mean complete. It can mean mature. If it means whole, complete, mature, there's also implied in the word a tinge of mercy. We know that the Father is sinless. We know that the Father is flawless. Does Jesus expect sinlessness and flawlessness from the citizen in the kingdom? We've already discovered that the citizen in the kingdom 
Sometimes has impure thoughts and an impure heart and, and an impure life. The command for perfection is a command not just simply for moral perfection. What Jesus has been asking for is a pure heart, pure speech, pure relationships, pure deeds. So the big question, do we fail? What's the right answer? Are we perfect? No. What do we do? We throw ourselves on the mercy of God. We ask for his forgiveness in Christ. We ask for forgiveness in Christ and acceptance in Christ and adoption in Christ. Once again, the context drives the meaning. Jesus has asked the citizen to love those who hate them, pray for those who persecute them, show kindness to friend and foe. Here, perfection almost certainly means a spiritual maturity and a personal integrity and the kind of maturity and integrity that allows Christians to act like their father in heaven by extending forgiveness to others acceptance to others inclusion in the family to others does Jesus demand the impossible Later in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, Jesus will say, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In what sense? We love through a divine enablement. That's regeneration, not through personal effort. In other words, we love not through willpower, simply, or won't power. Simply, I will do this, I won't do that. It is the kind of supernatural empowering that takes place when a person commits their lives to Christ and Jesus comes and invades their heart and gives them the ability to live differently. There's no perfection apart from Christ, There's, apart from mercy, apart from grace, apart from his sacrifice. But in Jesus, the impossible becomes possible. You know, in 1567, King Philip of Spain appointed the Duke of Alba as the governor of the lower part of the nation. And the Duke was a bitter enemy of the newly emerging Protestant Reformation. And his rule was called the Reign of Terror for good reason. And his council was called the Council of Blood for good reason because he slaughtered thousands and thousands of Christians. And it's reported that one man who was sentenced to die for his biblical faith managed to escape in the dead of winter, and after being pursued by a lone soldier, the man came to a lake, and the ice was, was cracking and thin. And somehow, the Christian managed to get safely across the ice, but as soon as he reached the other side, he heard his pursuer screaming. He had fallen through the ice. He was about to drown. And at the risk of being captured, at the risk of being tortured, at the risk of being eventually killed or drowned himself, he crossed back over the lake and he helped him out of the water. And when he was asked, he said, it was the love of Jesus. It was the love of Jesus that motivated me, that compelled me. Here's what he said. I have no choice but to do as Jesus asks me to do. 
We have no choice but to be faithful to Christ's command. Love, bless, do good, pray, mature. In what way? In moral and spiritual perfections. Love your enemy. And remember, your enemy is anyone who opposes you for any reason. And love means acting towards them with God's intentions. Bless them. Find a reason to say something good instead of something bad. Pray for them. And remember, the prayer isn't that they'll die and go to hell. It is that somehow they'll turn from their sins. Somehow they'll turn from the Savior. Somehow the cursing will turn to blessing. Somehow the opposition and the rebellion will turn to submission. Because you desire to know whether or not God is answering your prayers. And if you do all of those things, will they change? Many times they do. Will you change? Every time. Without exception. You'll be different. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we have no choice but to be faithful to Christ's command. Love. Bless. Do good. Pray. Grow up. And Lord, we discover something that now all of a sudden we have the capacity to do what you've asked us to do. It's almost impossible to love someone that we refuse, we refuse, we refuse to know under any circumstances. And so Lord, you invite us to do what you did. Love us when we were running away. Forgive us, not because we deserved it, but because you had a relationship in mind with us. And so, Father, I pray for that person. I pray for that person who's running away from God, who spit in his face, who is terrified over the possibility of experience, the kind of forgiveness that we've talked about, the acceptance that we've talked about, the adoption and place that we've talked about. Lord, fill their heart with the knowledge of your goodness. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you, turn from their sin and turn to the Savior and accept Jesus. And if that's you, and that's what, exactly what you want to do, you come and see me after this service. I'd love to talk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.